Good morning. My name is Ben Steele. This morning, our scripture reading will be from the Gospel of Mark. You can follow along in your Bible, and we also have them up on the screens as well. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39, from the English Standard Version. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. The man reading the scripture for us just now, his name is Ben Steele. He's going to be a dad soon. And one uh, quirky fact about him is he loves his Greek. And uh, he's over there thumbing through his Greek Bible when I'm trying to preach from the English. I could barely do that. And uh, so to give him the chance to read uh, the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lamasamachthani, publicly. That must have been quite a treat for you, Ben, huh? You like that? That's my uh, Father's Day gift to you. Uh, My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, I want us to uh, do three more miracles in the book of Mark before we move on to Philippians, and then we'll hit the summer series in Proverbs. Uh, Today, I want to talk about uh, something that I'm not sure you're going to like talking about. It's kind of like when my doctor told me to keep devices out of my room so I could actually sleep at night. And I was like, no, I'm not there yet. I'm going to just struggle with falling asleep and look, look on my phone. Uh, but today I want to talk about dying and how to die well. And uh, it's not a topic that you'd readily, readily jump into. It is, I think, one of those categories that kind of sneak up on you over time. And as you age and mature, you grow an increasing appreciation for the art of Uh, dying, how to die the good death. And I think it's a kind of miracle because the idea of living and surviving, looking out for yourself, these are all instinctual. It's, It's an imperative of mine. I want to live and survive and look out for myself. It's natural. But dying well, dying the good death, it's rare. You don't see that often. And it's counter instinctual. And it's somewhat supernatural in that it's not natural, and maybe it's a miracle. And I want to, uh, us to think about this in a way that I hope you'll like it better at the end of it than you do maybe now. But before we do that, I came across these little gems uh, of animal self-defense mechanisms, animals trying not to die the good death, Okay. So first we have, what's, the, what's that animal up on the upper left corner there? That's a turkey vulture. And uh, right under it is the... A dead rabbit. <laughs> it's a fulmar. 
And both of these creatures, uh, their primary self-defense mechanism is to vomit, to either disgust their uh, predator or to actually harm them. And uh, the little guy on the bottom, the fulmar, sometimes kills himself trying to defend himself. And then next to these guys, we have the upper right corner is, it's the hairy frog. And below it is the Iberian ribbed newt. Anybody know that? And both of these guys, their primary defense mechanism is to push their bones out through their skin. And then after they're not in danger anymore, they suck the bones back in in the hopes that they don't get infected before their skin heals up. And you guessed it, sometimes they die. Okay? A couple more. Uh, Over on your left, there is the horny lizard. And this guy likes to shoot blood out of its eyes to scare away potential predators. And then the little beetle next to him, it's the bombardier beetle. And this is the, I saved the best for last, guys. It has two glands that hold two different chemicals. And at the last minute before it shoots out its bum bum, it comes together chemically, uh, instantly almost hitting boiling temperature. And uh, it's a chemical also, and it harms their prey. And sometimes, yes, they kill themselves. (laughs) So... Kind of fun. Animals are interesting in the ways that they defend themselves. It's natural and normal for them to do these things. Uh, And they're interesting, but I find human behavior uh, even more interesting. Although I do wish human beings would be a little more overt and obvious when they're in sort of self-defense mode. You know, like blood shooting out their eyes or something. I know know to back off then. Uh, But we're more subtle. And we have these very subtle and tricky ways of Uh, how we survive all day long. Uh, The one that I thought I would mention is called the bandwagon effect. And this means that we survive by doing what everybody else is doing. But on a conscious level, we think we're making choices. We're being unique and expressive. But really, we're just mimicking other people as a way to blend in and make the decision easier and uh, survive. Another one is the anchoring effect. That's when you hold on to your first piece of information, like it's everything, and you close yourself off to other information. So when somebody tells you this originally costs $5,000, you get stuck on that number, and you think $4,500 is a good deal for an ugly stuffed fox, like the picture is saying. And then another one is Uh, reactance, and this means to survive by being defensive and incorrigible and closed off to feedback and information and truth often. And it's uh, one of probably our most popular ways that we survive all day long. And so animals, human beings, we all have these defense mechanisms. We have a propensity for defense and coping mechanisms because we don't readily know how to die so gracefully. We don't know how to die well. But what we see in Scripture, and hopefully as you're growing up as a person, and as you're moving towards the image of Christ in which you were originally created, you begin to understand that the direction of maturity and love And discipline is towards the ability of dying well. 
that the more mature you are, the better you know how to die. The more Christ-like you are, the better you are at suffering well. So the direction of growth for us is towards giving rather than getting. I've spent so much of my life trying to get, but now I'm learning more and more that it's really more about giving, that there's more joy there. But it's hard for me that there's actually greater value in being last rather than being first. I'm so used to elbowing people out of the way my whole life, and now I come to find out maybe being last is better. And that trusting someone and trusting God and being a trusting person in general, it's a more fruitful, winsome, likable, and happier way to live than trying to control everyone and everything. How many of you know that trying to be controlling in control is stressful? And lastly, that being self-promoting is not as good as being a humble. I know lots of young people who love to promote themselves. I remember being one of those guys, but now I find self-promoting really too tiring. I just, I'm too tired to talk about myself as much as I used to. It's easier to sort of listen to other people. And this is sort of where I'm coming from as I was assessing uh, myself against this sermon uh, in the last couple of weeks. I realized that I'm very familiar with the uh, uh, science of living. I want to live and live well. I have lots of muscle memory for survival. And some of the reasons include, but are not, uh, you know, uh, it's not everything, but it includes having a traumatic past that put me on the journey towards being a survivor. I also have layered on top of that uh, my immigration story. And as an immigrant, I have to, I have, I've had to learn how to survive. I also had a really rough upbringing in, in this country growing up in the inner city. Some of you saw my Facebook post a couple of weeks ago uh, about a picture of this alley where I was shot at. I didn't get shot. Being shot and being shot at are two different things. Um, and on top of that, I am a third culture kid because my parents moved, the, moved me around quite a bit. And I have moved around uh, over, uh, you know, my wife and I have bought or sold over a dozen times in our marriage. So lots of transitions. Third culture, kid. And on top of all that, now being in ministry has also put me in a kind of survival mode because I'm sort of uh, paid to give all the time and listen all the time and, and see other people all the time. And then I become possessive about my own time. And so lots of muscle memory for surviving, but not really for dying well. But even for somebody like me, I am seeing maybe it's part of the aging process. I think it's definitely part of the maturing process. I feel a shift happening uh, in energy and perspective from libido, which is sometimes used specifically uh, to talk about procreation, but really it's uh, generally a life instinct and uh, this, an instinct to perpetuate life. I'm shifting from libido to thanatos, which is a Greek word that Freud used to talk about the death instinct or the death energy. And I feel sort of my thanatos going up and sometimes outmatching my libido energy. 
that there is some part of me, some image of God in me that doesn't just want to live, but I also want to know how to die well. And maybe some of you feel that shift uh, happening in you, or maybe it started happening for you a while ago. But personally for me, I recognize this shift, and I consider it a huge part of my personal maturing and healing process. And it's a confirmation to me that I'm moving in the right general direction. The few verses that we're going to look at today are like snapshots or images that show us how Jesus died, the manner in which he died. And uh, it's not just the fact that he died. That's sort of what the focus often is on, that he died and that he rose from the dead. But there is a manner in which he died, and this manner in which he died serves for us and the world as the final proof of his divinity on this side of heaven. Of course, the resurrection is the ultimate proof of divinity. But before he died, how he died caused people to exclaim, Oh my gosh, did we just kill God? There's something very different about the way he died. Uh, Here's what I'd like you to consider uh, from today's sermon. Dying well is more to the point than living well. I'm not saying living well has no place in our life. We should all strive to live well. What I'm saying is when it comes to uh, the finite and ultimate nature of life. Dying well is more to the point than living well. Living well is natural and instinctual, while dying well is a kind of miracle. We perceive something of the divine when we catch a glimpse of it. And I really think this is true whether you are a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or whether you're an atheist. When somebody catches a glimpse of one who is dying well. They have some thought, some version of, I wonder what is the power at work within them that allows them to die in such a manner. Because it's rare. You don't get to see very often somebody dying well. And when you see this rare occurrence, you do wonder on some level, how are they able to do that? I can't imagine dying that way. What is this light? What is this power? So there's great opportunity to be a light and to be salt when we die well. And I would argue throughout the sermon, it's more powerful than somebody who is living well. Two points. Why dying well is really hard to do. And second, why it might be worth it. Okay, first, why dying well is really hard to do. We start with verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And this verse shows us that when you're dying, there is temporary but pervasive darkness. Okay, here's my first insight of the sermon. Ready for this gem here? Dying feels like death. What did you expect dying to feel like? And I don't know why it catches me off guard, but when I'm in a moment of death or self-denial or some place where there's tension, 
and not everything is sight, but I'm sort of living by hope and faith. When I'm in that moment, when I'm having to love someone and choose that someone over and against myself and my self-interest, that moment feels like death. Doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel great. I'm torn. The, the, the tension is alive and well in me at that moment. So there's your first insight. Dying feels like death. Be surprised not when it begins to feel not that great. There's a kind of, as this passage will show us, a hopelessness, a kind of dimming vision and a depletion of light and energy that covers not just one area of your life or self, but the whole land as it were. And you begin to lose hopelessness in all areas of your life. You begin to feel a darkness that's sort of pervading the land. And it's temporary. It's only for three hours. But in that moment, you can't know that. It just feels like this darkness is going to last forever. And for me, this right here in this moment is when my panic sets in when my defense mechanisms just start kicking in and it starts taking over my thinking and my talking and my reactivity, and it does so unwittingly. Um, some random movie that I saw back uh, like uh, 15 years ago, The Life of David Gale, Kevin Spacey movie, I think from 2003, I believe. Anybody seen, seen this movie? Wow, two people, three. Last service, we had zero this is, a, this is a more uh, interesting crowd, I'm going to gather. The more Sundance uh, Film Festival crowd here. Um, but this movie, Life of David Gale, one of the things I took away, and this is a fact that I think about, is you can't really kill yourself by suffocation because at some point in the process, even though your intent was to die, your body takes over because you have a survival instinct that takes over, and you, start, you just rip off the plastic bag that you put over your head. So the only way to die by suffocation is if you tie your hands behind your back. That was a big part of the movie. And I looked this up, and it turns out it's true that you can't put a bag over your head unless you tie your hands behind you, and somebody else has to do that. And the point that this uh, movie is teaching, teaching me is that I don't die well. And even if I meant to love you and choose you, at some point in the process of dying, my instincts take over, and I start flailing my arms because I want to live rather than die. That my attachment to my own life is instinctually greater than my ability and desire to die the good death. Because I have a reaction against darkness. I don't like losing hope. I don't like my vision dimming. Uh, the most live example for me that came to mind was my history with sermon feedback. And right now, uh, after these couple of decades of preaching thousands of sermons, because that's how long it's taken for me to get better in this area, um, is uh, now when you give me sermon feedback or when anybody gives me sermon feedback, it doesn't have to be perfect. The emotional packaging doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, the timing doesn't matter. No matter how you say it or whatever you say, I have figured out how to sift through it, and that's you, and that's not me. And I have uh, sort of uh, uh, not 
thick skin, as in it's not penetrating me, but I'm just sort of a sermon feedback veteran at this point, I would say, compared to how I used to receive sermon feedback, when it was like trying to like do some ballet move on thin ice. It just was a tricky endeavor for you, and you're probably going to get, you know, you're going to fall through the ice, and you're going to die giving me sermon feedback. Because, and you can verify this with Susie, her timing had to be perfect. And she had to say it in just the right way. And yet she has to sort of just curate all her word choices beforehand. And even then, we're probably going to get into a fight. Because even though I asked for the feedback, even though I want the feedback and I need the feedback, shortly after she opens her mouth, I start flailing my arms. My defense mechanisms kick in because dying is really hard to do. It really is. And the first reason is because it's so dang dark and scary. Another uh, reason why dying well is really hard to do is found in verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means in the Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the point, the idea that this verse is highlighting for us is the concept of abandonment. You've heard this word. Uh, It's a well-known fact that this is one of our core fears, the fear of abandonment. I think it's just shy of being first. I think the first is like public speaking or something. Um, Personally, I fear abandonment a lot more than speaking. Uh, But there's increasing scientific evidence. In fact, uh, many states are considering outlawing solitary confinement. And the UN already has declared that you can't put minors under 18 in solitary confinement. And so that's an official UN uh, regulation now. But the scientific community is building towards what I would say is a doctrine of the Trinity. And what the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this idea of a triune God, teaches us that the irreducible element that constitutes us, the the cellular level, the microscopic level on uh, what we're made of is connection, relationship, intimacy. This idea of with, that we're not created to be alone. This idea of truth, beauty, maturity, healing, reality itself emerges out of the triune God. There's nothing in existence outside of what God created out of his own image, which exists as a relationship, as a community. And we understand that One God is three Godheads, but it's really one. That even when we talk about this idea of singularity, oneness, we're talking about a triune God. What this means for us is that connection, this idea of being with each other, it's not just a means to survival. It's not like Peter wants to live a happy life and he needs other people so that he can live a happy life. What this doctrine of Trinity teaches us is that the idea of life itself is connection. 
that I can't exist outside of my connection, that I am void, that my identity, my id and ego as a person collapses without connectionality. Therefore, even the scientific community is acknowledging that when you put somebody in solitary confinement, it does such fundamental damage to the framework of what it means to be a human being that they're outlawing it. It's considered torture. But here we have the Trinity, which explains why connection is absolutely non-negotiable and crucial and fundamental. It constitutes the fabric of what it means to be alive, to live, to have consciousness, to be a human being. It's the portrait of heaven and health. And so we know now that sin, what it primarily does is it causes abandonment. It causes forsakenness or separation. Sin is separation. So Jesus on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And his expression, his verbal expression of what he was experiencing on a cosmic level is, my God, my God, why are you putting me in solitary confinement? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you cutting me off? He was connected to his Father. They were one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, distinct defined but connected. Do you see this? Jesus says, why have I been made sin? Why have have I been separated? And the answer is, he's experiencing in concentrated form what we experience when we sin. We experience a kind of abandonment or a kind of solitary confinement. That's why secrets are so heavy. It's so hard to bear a secret because it causes separation. And how you behave begins to curve around the secret as a way to protect it. But what you're really doing is turning your back on the connections you need for life. A third um, reason why dying well is really, really hard to do is found in verse 35 to 37. Uh, this is the most fun one for me. It says this, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the idea there is that when you are surrounded by darkness... When you're feeling abandoned, no one really understands. When you're in pain, when you're suffering, when you're dying, when you're practicing self-denial, don't expect others to be able to comprehend what you're experiencing. It's your own unique experience of that moment. 
And one of the greatest lies you can hear when you're going through that is somebody saying, I understand. Because they can't. Because they don't. Notice what's happening here. Jesus is having this moment. There's not one person who can fully comprehend or even begin to imagine what's happening to Jesus on the cross. Can you, can you imagine what it's like to be God the Son, being forsaken by God the Father, and becoming sin for us? What is it like to take on the sin for us? What is it like for darkness to settle down? Nobody. And what are the people doing? They're taking their story and they're putting it on him. Do you know people do this? And it's really frustrating and it's annoying and sometimes it's really hurtful when people who uh, profess to understand your story are actually just putting their story on you. Uh, What does he say? Eloi, Eloi, what? Oh, he must be talking about Elijah. Oh, yeah, let's give him some wine because wasn't he asked, didn't he say he was thirsty or something? Even though we've been torturing him for 36 hours, I think right now he's complaining about his thirst, even though he didn't utter a single word of complaint. Maybe that's how, they're just, they can't fathom what it's like, so they just put their story on him. And it further cements the fact that Jesus is utterly alone. Jesus doesn't get to tell his own story. And in the moment of his death, he died alone. And that's what dying feels like, utter aloneness. That's why it's so hard to do. Uh, I've been learning uh, these days for the last couple of months about level one, level two, and level three interactions. Level three is the highest form of interaction you can have with a person. It's when somebody uh, tells you, they share something with you, and you respond with a level three question or statement. And what that question or statement does for that person who just shared is it causes them to think further and deeper about what they just shared. And so it keeps a spotlight on them where it belongs. It's their story. They get to tell it. And you get to respond, but still it's about them. And one of the ways you know is, I'm learning, is when you ask them the question or make a statement, their eyeballs go up and to the right. They start thinking because you just cause them to reach deeper into their heart, into their story. But because I've been made aware of these levels, I've been judging everybody for like two months, (laughs) including myself. And I would say, Easily, 80% of interactions are level one and level two. You know what level two is? Level two is when you respond to their sharing with a question that's more information gathering. So if they share something painful like, oh, I just got diagnosed with cancer. (gasps) What kind of cancer? That question doesn't help them at all. They already know. But you want to know. You want to gather the fact. So you cause them to take their mind and consciousness away from what they just shared in the emotional moment they're having. And they have to look to your left and go, oh, wait, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's really bad. It's bladder cancer or something, right? So they have to now give you that information, but now they've pulled away from their train of thought. So that's level two. That's what most people do. And then what another set of people do, and this is really, it just makes me upset sometimes, is level one. 
Any guesses on what level one is? Level one is when you turn the story around so it's about you. Oh, I had a friend once who had cancer. His name was, his name was Johnson. And well, he just, you just go off on your own story of cancer. And they're sort of left in the lurch, like with their heart hanging out, going, oh, I thought you asked me how I was doing. <laughs> but okay, we'll shift the light over to you. It'll be your story. Let me know when you're done or if you even want to know anymore. Right? That's level one. You listen. People are really, really good at not understanding you at all. And there's something really sort of hard about um, uh, dying because there's uh, darkness, there's abandonment, and no one really understands. But a couple of reasons why it might be worth it. The first is found in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the truth there is that death is not the final destination, but it's a door to healing. And the reason is because the temple uh, curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. Here's what I mean. The curtain is 60 feet tall, or some number of cubits, but it's 60 feet tall, and uh, the research indicates that the curtain was four inches thick. That's really thick. Has anybody ever seen a four-inch curtains? It's got to be heavy, right? So much so that two horses could be tied to the curtain, and they can be uh, running at uh, opposite ends, and they couldn't pull the curtain apart. And it was making, communicating something deeply spiritual and true, that there was no way a human being could penetrate the other side of the curtain. That was the whole point of God saying, build a temple this way. And the fact that it was torn from top to bottom means that no human being could have done it, and they didn't do it. That God himself tore the curtain from the top that no, no horses could even tear, to symbolize that Jesus' death is the door to connection, to reconciliation, to healing, to life again. We're connected to God. It means that God is our Redeemer, and He alone has been at work. It's not just somehow the automatic way the universe works. It's not like... Uh, Good things just happen out of bad things. There's an author that's behind that work, moving us towards himself. Death is a necessary part of the healing process, and we can know this because Jesus died, and when he died, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. How else do you know that death is a door. Because death, when you're going through it, just feels like nothing other than the final destination. And that's why we have such an aversion against it. But we see that death is a door. Practically for us, it means that it's okay to face hard things that feel like death in your life. It means, for example, that you can have hard conversations. 
Do you know that if you are unwilling to have hard conversations, you're probably not going to grow in your relationship with that person you need to have the hard conversation with. You're choosing to stay at that current level of intimacy and connectedness. And that's okay. That's a choice you're making, but you should know that. Do you know that it's hard to reveal secrets? But if you don't reveal secrets, you're probably going to die in certain ways. Not the good death. Do you know that when you confess your sin and take responsibility and you follow up with hard action, then you're going to grow because death is a door. These things are hard. But it's a means to an end. Let me conclude uh, with the final reason why uh, I think death might be worth it. Verse 39 when the, centurion stu- when the centurion who stood facing him, listen, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The good death is divine. The whole experience of witnessing Christ dying on the cross led this man, a centurion soldier, not even a religious person, to somehow come to the conclusion that he must be witnessing the death of God. There's something about the manner in which Jesus died that pointed to a power outside of the body of Christ, outside of the human person of Christ. People are not interested as much in how well you're living as in how well you are dying. My uh, first example of this is uh, Facebook. I don't know what it is. I, I really do like Facebook, actually. And I'm, I'm not going to close my account like I think to do a thousand times before. Uh, but here's why I want to close it sometimes. Because every time I look at Facebook for like five, ten minutes, I get off Facebook, and sometimes I'm not even aware of it, but I do some sort of emotional, mental gymnastics that allows me to sort of process what I've read and allow me to live on with my life. For example, I put on Facebook a picture of me that somebody else took while I was running the Mercer Island Half Marathon. All these people, if you look, I think I got like... Uh, like 150 likes or something and like 60 comments or something like that. It was, it was a good one. It was a, um, one of the upper tier of the year. But everybody's thinking like I'm just, you know, having an amazing time in Seattle and I'm just perfect and my marriage is perfect and my kids are perfect and my job is all great because they saw a picture of me running. And it's just not true. It was torturous. I ran mostly through rain and dark, training for that half marathon. And after I ran the half marathon, ask my kids what I said. I'm never doing it again. (laughs) And my kids said, Dad, you say that every time. (laughs) But there's a huge backstory to that picture that my friends don't see, my quote-unquote friends don't see. And they imagine that They're comparing that one outside picture to their inner world, you know, to how they're feeling. And, of course, they don't measure up. 
or somebody puts up a picture of a piece of sushi or something, and you're like, whoa, look at this person living this elegant life. How amazing. Look at this grilled cheese sandwich nonsense I'm eating right now. It's discouraging to, to be on Facebook for too long. Do you realize you have to sort of get yourself out of that comparison mode a little bit when you, your life just seems so pathetic and boring and dull? And, but that's because it's not helpful to see how well people are living. It's not encouraging when somebody's happy and, and living the champion life and being victorious and What's really helpful is when you see somebody dying well, when somebody denying themselves and giving themselves over to serving and caring. These chosen acts of self-giving and dying, this is beautiful and it gives us strength because the good death is divine. We look at somebody dying well and we think, you know, they have a power outside of themselves. What is the power at work within them? And because it's outside of that person, we think, oh, that means I can have it too. It's not like intrinsic to them. They're not amazing human beings. That's not why they're dying well. There must be some other amazing thing causing this very fallen human being to die well because that's really, really hard to do. And so it gives me hope. Uh, Just a couple of application points for those of you who um, want it. Uh, try, number one, try denying yourself and do something for another person three times a day. I confess I tried it yesterday because I had to test it out for my sermon. And uh, I spent an hour and a half doing uh, this really hard chore that wasn't my job. It was somebody else's job to do in the house. Um, And I did it. And uh, honestly, it felt terrible. (laughs) Uh, But it was really connectional. And because it wasn't my deal and I did it anyway, um, I got thanked like five, six times. And there was just, it built up the relationship. I won't say who it was, but she was really appreciative. And she was glad to be married to me for an hour and a half. (laughs) Um, Second application point. Uh, think about evangelism. You know, if you are here and you believe in Jesus and you believe that knowing him is knowing life and all that good stuff, try demonstrating that through acts of denial. See if you can do that a couple of times without using your words. Like sacrifice, sacrificial, not just convenient. But it's at a cost to you. You know, like if you buy somebody a meal, don't eat. Like see what that's like. You know, and then at the end of the week, ask the question, am I moving in the direction of denial and death? And how does it feel? Does it feel like growth? Does it feel like life? Is there sort of humility that's coming on me that's better than I've experienced before? Um, In closing, let me read from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 11. I uh, sort of uh, redacted it to uh, flow and fit on the screen better. This will be our prayer and conclusion, pointing to Christ. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. 
For this reason, God highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.